are grateful for that and what it means for God's people to gather together and to center themselves around ideas that are larger than us and that have something more to do than just what we would maybe necessarily like to do or, or want to do or think is uh, the most clever or whatever it might be, but that there is this way in which we gather together as a group to submit ourselves to the leading and to the headship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And uh, we're always grateful for that. So as that is, um, I'll give a couple announcements, and then we're going to move, and I'm going to share from the, the text is in John 11 this morning, and we'll make our way to the table uh, as the climax of our service where we come and we partake in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So we partake in that because of uh, what we call Resurrection Sunday or Easter weekend, Holy Week. And so those are our announcements coming up. A week from today is Palm Sunday, and if you are familiar with the church calendar or the narrative that we find in the Passion uh, in our Gospel accounts, Palm Sunday is the Sunday that leads up to the crucifixion of Jesus and what begins what we call Holy Week as the church. And so we would love for you to join us for that next week as we talk about the triumphal entry of Jesus uh, entering into Jerusalem and beginning those final few days uh, before that moment. Uh, and in that we celebrate or observe, uh, celebrate is a, a, a different word for it, but I think it's a, an apt word, Good Friday. So we'll have a Good Friday service here at 5.30 p.m. in this space. Uh, it'll be a shorter service. It's a lot of scripture reading, moments for reflection, for um, thought, and, and to prepare our hearts and our minds and to place ourselves there at the foot of the cross and to recognize and to reckon with uh, all that it means that Christ died for our sins and that we have life and life abundant in him. And so it's a way for us to prepare and to kind of allow ourselves to be reminded of the depths of that moment and of that day as we look towards and uh, get ready to celebrate Easter season, which for us at Mosaic is not just one Sunday, but it is a season. Uh, it is six weeks that we will sit in. We call it Easter tide or Easter season. And we will continue to uh, celebrate beyond just Resurrection Sunday. But Resurrection Sunday will also be happening um, here. So Good Friday is April 7th, which that means if you're good at math and you understand the way the calendar works, uh, Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday is April 9th. Uh, we'll meet at our normal time on that Sunday, but weather permitting, we'll be downstairs uh, right there at the foot of where the stairs come up uh, under that kind of awning, beer garden area outside of the brewery, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we'll be there uh, and we'll meet in that space. And then we always like to encourage folks, a lot of us on uh, that Sunday, stick around afterwards, grab food from somewhere nearby, bring food with you, um, whatever it is, uh, you know, Uber some food or something, I don't know, uh, DoorDash, Postmates, what, however we get it uh, to us, you can do that. But we want to encourage you to do that and allow it to be a day that we celebrate in a different kind of way. And so that's part of moving it outside, uh, allowing us to mark it as something different. And we'll also have baby dedications that Sunday. So if you uh, are a parent and have a baby that uh, has not been dedicated to the Lord or you have questions about that, what that means spiritually, why we do that, uh, the significance of it, we'd love to talk to you about that. It's an important part of the community to celebrate the life and the joy of a growing community and the, just what it means that we as individuals are given to the Lord and the Spirit does this work in which he stakes claim to his children and we want to participate in that and the responsibilities and the excitement of discipling those children and leading them into a life of Christ and really just recognizing and acknowledging that we together as a community and as parents and families of all of this that we are stewarding and that we're given these gifts of life and that we want them uh, to become the people that they're meant to be, to become who they are already in Christ and who Christ intended them to be. And so we find that a very exciting moment in the life of our church and in our community. And so if you have questions about that or want to be a part of that, please contact me or Kyle uh, we, or talk to us after the service and we will do that. Uh, if it does rain, we'll just move service up here in this space. Uh, it'll be a little bit more full on an on a Easter morning than usual. And we'll still have some children's ministry that Sunday. Some of the older kids that normally go in the back, uh, they'll stay with us. But for our kids that tend to be squirmers and uh, crazos at times, i.e. my children, uh, they will, there, there are going to be lessons and moments for them in the back. It'll be shorter, a little more condensed. We won't have our normal uh, intermission time like we do that morning, but uh, outside of that, it'll be a pretty normal service. And so we hope that you can join us. Invite a friend, you know, 
These are one of like the two Sundays or, or two services out of the year that people are like, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll go to church. Why not? Uh, it was a couple years ago, maybe it was last year, Kyle was asked the brewery and was like making sure it's okay. And there were like two people sitting there. And she's like, oh, you guys are having an Easter service? And the guy was like, you don't go to church. She's like, I might go to church on Easter. Uh, so, you know, invite a friend that's maybe curious or, or has questions about what it would be like to attend or to be around Mosaic. We would love for that. That's the announcements. They're brief, uh, for me at least, uh, not for normal people. That, that would have been long, you know, but for me that was quick. So we're going to move to our passage. It's another long passage, and this I do mean is very long. Uh, the lectionary that we've been in during this time and where we've been getting, we've been using the gospel lessons. The lectionary is this preset thing that's been around for a very, 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 very long time that the church collectively, universally uses uh, across the globe. There are... Uh, thousands and thousands of churches that are talking about these passages today. Uh, you get a psalm, an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, and a gospel reading every Sunday. And for the time of Lent, we've been focusing on the gospel reading or lesson, as they're sometimes called. And these last two Sundays have been very famous passages from the gospel of John. And this third one we'll pick right up. These are probably the three most famous passages from the Gospel of John. We had the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, the healing of the blind man, and now today we're going to talk about Lazarus. Uh, that being said, the, one of the reasons that they're the most famous is that some of the best storytelling in Scripture. And Kyle and I, we joked, and we we're like, we, we tried last two times, and I tried this week to chalk this up into smaller verses and into uh, less, you know, time. But it's just, to, to get the story, it's just so good. And it all is connected, and it's just the beauty of Scripture and the beauty of what John is doing in his gospel as the author of this uh, story and as the author of and the words of this Jesus and what he's trying to convey to us. So I'm going to read it all, but I will do it like I did a couple weeks ago. Um, I'll sort of stop periodically here and there, make some explanations, make some points. I won't make you stand for this because this will be a while. But as we enter into this text, John 11, I think it's worth noting that it, the story of Lazarus is a familiar one for most of us. I think a lot of us would say that we've heard that story. At minimum, you have least know the name, right? And, and you know this idea of this man that Jesus calls back to life. And yet, in its familiarity, I think that oftentimes what the challenge can be is to look at a text like this and kind of go, that's never been my experience to see someone come back from the dead. M maybe a few of you have been uh, near or like one degree separated from someone that, you know, lifelined or, or died for a moment and miraculously somehow came back. But to be dead for four days, I've seen some pretty miraculous things in my lifetime. It's one of the reasons like I just am, am enamored by the Holy Spirit and will uh, make space for a lot of miraculous and transcendent and metaphysical things, things that we can't explain. Because I've seen them happen, I've seen healings, I've seen miracles. I've never seen anybody come back from the dead, like even remotely close, let alone be dead for four days and then just like, here I am, I'm back. Don't call it a comeback, I guess, LL Cool J. So there's these moments where, where we read a passage like this and we're familiar with it and we understand that it's important and that it matters, but we're like, well, what does this really have to do with me? And so then I think the temptation of a passage like this is to do one of two things. It is either to sort of dismiss it and just sort of say, well, that's got nothing to do with me. That's kind of weird. That's one of those passages. It's a story I know well. It's a Bible story. Maybe one of you, I know I did this, and maybe it was just me that I didn't uh, celebrate Halloween as a child, but I would go to uh, fall festival parties, and you had to dress up like Bible characters. Lazarus was an easy one. It was low-hanging fruit. Just wrap some toilet paper around you, and you were Lazarus, you know? And so it's an easy way to have a good costume. And so there, there's a familiarity with it, but we can still be very dismissive of it because we're just kind of like, what does somebody coming back from the dead? And honestly, if we stop and slow down long enough, what we will say is that like, we're disappointed by Jesus by much lesser things, let alone somebody coming back from the dead. And so forget that like, we've never seen it. We don't know what to do with it because there's been too many times where we have been touched by grief like, we've prayed for miracles before death, and they didn't happen, and we're like, what, I just, it's easier to just sort of ignore it. And so we dismiss it, we become cynical, this, you know, maybe it's real, maybe it's not, maybe it's just a story. Or I think the temptation is to over-spiritualize it, 
And to kind of remove the, the profundity of Christ being on display here, of the fact that he is the Messiah, that he's doing something here, that he's saying something here. And so we're going to try to walk that bound. So hold that intention as we read it to be reminded of and, and to, to recall who it is that John is trying to put on display. That this is Jesus, the man that is fully human and yet fully God, that he is the Messiah, the one that we worship and submit our lives to and center all that we do around in his ways and practicing his ways. And yet I want us to think that there might be something for us to leave with here today because you read a passage like this in Lent because it has something to say to, to what Lent is doing. Lent is this way to allow ourselves to look beyond either cynicism or maybe this like kind of Pollyanna look at life. This overly optimistic kind of everything's good, everything's fine, and everything sort of just stays here and we never actually admit that we would have emotions or feelings about anything that would ever possibly remotely even possibly kind of maybe be negative. By the way, the first time I ever heard of the word Pollyanna is a great emo band that's actually from Huntsville, Alabama called North Star. They had a record that came out when I was in high school and didn't know what that word was until then and the word etched into my brain. Had to share that because it was, you know, there. So anyways, if you've never heard of North Star, they're phenomenal. I uh, haven't made a record since like 2006, but enjoy it. Alabama band, you have to. So Pollyanna, this way of existing and being that is just overly positive. And we know these types of people. And they're nice to have around and they're fun, but they're not the person that you would call in a moment of crisis. They're not the person that you would want just to like give it to you straight, to tell you the truth. And Lent is begging Christians to move past that type of approach of life. To say, look, everything is not rainbows and butterflies. Everything's not always just going to be okay. Sometimes all we desperately need is for someone to look at us and say, that really sucks. And then to just shut up and sit next to you for a minute. And then also to look at you and say, okay, now it's time to, like, to, to do this. Because it doesn't leave, leave us in cynicism. Lent is this honest approach, but it begs of us to also, in our honesty, to have faith, to have hope, to have joy in the midst of these. And this passage holds these two things well. And so it's going to ask something of us as we listen to it, as we are held between these two poles of, of overly optimistic or overly cynical. And, and what we do in that when we encounter grief and we encounter pain is I think all of us have a tendency to do one thing or the other. We're either going to maximize it and kind of allow it to consume us and it becomes our world and everything is defined by the pain we experience and we're always in pain, there's always something wrong and life will never be good, what's the point in trying? Life is just a slog, you just get through it, you just survive. If you talk to young parents, sometimes they have a tendency to sound like this, just like, well, it's just all terrible, and you know, I mean, that's just parenting, it's what you do. You talk to people that just have entered into the workforce, like, well, work is just terrible, it's just what you do, like, it's just awful, and you just get through it, and eventually one day you'll be a manager or whatever it is. Or you have a tendency to minimize pain. This is probably where I go. When you ask me how I'm doing, oh, everything's good, everything's great, yeah, yeah, it's good, it's good, it's good. Why aren't you saying, oh, yeah, I mean, it's hard, but like, yeah, whatever. And like, I just kind of want to like not acknowledge it. Or what I really, really honestly do is I usually minimize all my pain and I live kind of in a Pollyanna type of way of life until finally it breaks and then I swing into extreme cynicism and anger and then everybody around me is terrible and I just want to fight everybody, right? Maybe you swing in these pendulums as well. But we have a tendency to live one or the other, and the gospel of Jesus invites us to come into confrontation and to name and to confront our pain, and yet not to be overcome with or succumbed with anger and bitterness and frustration, but to have hope in the midst of it. So hear these words out of John 11. We're going to go from verses 1 through 45, but like I said, we'll take a few little breaks here and there. John 11 verse 1 starts, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. 
No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Okay, pause for just a second. This should seem weird to you as, as weird as it seems to me. What we want what John wants us to see in verses one through seven, very quickly, is that Jesus really, really loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. These are like his best friends. These are the people he hangs out and chills with. He's got the 12 disciples, but these are like his non-work friends, the people that like he doesn't have to be friends with, right? His OGs, his day ones. Uh, I want to make like a ride or die joke here with Lazarus, but it just it wouldn't come to me this morning. <laughs> but like these are the people he goes when he's like he's off, like he needs joy, he needs delight, he needs rest. He finds these people when he escapes. Not in the escapism kind of way, but in the like, man, like, I'm just going to relax. Like, these are his people. And there's this weird moment, and John wants us to see this, that he loves them, he cares for them, he's close to them, he's near to them. And they come to him and they say, hey, Lazarus is sick. And in verse 6, our translation, at least the NIV, the one I was reading, what was on the screen, it says, so when he heard... The Greek word there that's being used is oftentimes translated in our text and other places in the gospel as therefore. Kyle and I have preached enough and you guys know our tricks and our patterns enough that when we read a therefore we go, well obviously that means you need to understand that something has happened that has caused this. There is a cause and effect with a therefore. Something happens, therefore this happens. So what the text is implying is that Jesus really, really loves Lazarus really, really thinks he's an amazing person. It's like his BFFF, you know. And then he gets the word that he is sick, and it says, so therefore he stayed two more days. And the disciples and Mary and Martha and everybody around are kind of going, oh, why? What? Why would you do that? Why would you say, you shouldn't have been, so therefore you went immediately to Lazarus? But in the same kind of way as we have to wrestle with the theological issues and be honest about them last week with the blind man, and Kyle brought this up, that there's this weird moment that none of us really like. Maybe we're not offended by it, but we don't love the fact that it says that the man was blind just so God's glory could be put on display. Who sinned? Like, we, we're kind of with the crowd. We're like, we want something to be wrong here. We want to be able to explain this. It's like, well, we can't really explain it. What we know is it's just that God's glory will be put on display because of this man's blindness. And the same thing's being implied here. That there's something bigger happening in this moment. That Jesus is going to display the glory of God and, and be glorified in that glory as the Son of Man. And so he waits. And that should bother us. And it's good that it bothers you. It bothers the disciples. It bothers Mary and Martha. And it says so that they would wait. And then finally he's like, okay, let's go back now. But the disciples have some issues with this. They're like, uh, hey, Jesus, Rabbi, do you remember the last time we were there, everybody tried to kill you? Do you really think that's the best idea? Do you really think we should go back to the place where the last time you were there, just like a couple days ago, everybody was like, hey, let's stone this dude? And so he answers in verse 9. I skipped verse 8 there. But are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Jesus' cryptic talk here, once again, and essentially what John is wanting us to see is that this wisdom, this insight, man's wisdom, is good, it's fine, but the light of the world, wisdom and insight and the way of being and existing and the path in which you should follow is not the one that makes sense, it's the one that Jesus is on. And this is kind of around the same time that uh, John's writing his gospel, there's this group of people that are called the Gnostics, and they're writing other uh, writings around uh, this uh, period and point. And what the Gnostics would have said is that there's this light, this inner light that each man carries, each human being carries, and this inner light that they have is the way that the people should go. And, and there's this wisdom. And John is saying in his gospel, man has logic, man has reason, and it is good but it is better to follow the light, and Christ is the light of the world. Not some inner wisdom, not some knowledge, not, not what is good kind of practical sense. 
Jesus is the light of the world. And unless you follow him, you walk in darkness. And so he's saying, come, follow me, even if it doesn't make sense. And so they follow him. And he goes, and as they're going, they say, he says to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, won't he get better? Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. Of course, sleep is good. Don't wake a sleeping baby. Don't wake somebody that's sick up. Like, let them sleep. That sleep is the best thing that they could have, right? They need it. Why would this, this doesn't make sense to them, and it shouldn't make sense to us either in this moment, because no one up until this point had ever talked about death as something so temporary as sleep. Death was final. No one ever had another word after death up until this point. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's just like sleep. And so he realizes that they're confused, and so he says to them, Lazarus is not dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And they're like, hey, he's definitely dead. Now, earlier he had said that the sickness would not end in death. A better word, or I think a more helpful word, it's not necessarily better, or better idea, Dale Bruner, New Testament scholar, commentator, writes in his translation that it doesn't terminate. And he's intentionally using this idea of like if you're on a train or a bus, where it terminates is where it ends. And he says that it's a better word because it gives the sense in the Greek or this idea that Jesus is not ever, does not ever say that Lazarus' sickness will not go through death and that you will not go through death. But what he is promising is that it will not terminate. It will not end in death. It will not be the final destination. But you may have to go through it. And that's the life of a believer. You have to go through grief and hardship. But that is not your story. That is not where your journey ends. But it doesn't mean that you are free from it. Jesus is not free from it. And most of the people he encounters in Scripture are not free from it, even after they meet him. He says, no, 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 this continues. Your life is like mine. Your way is the way of the cross. But it will not end there. There is always more to the journey than the death that you must go through. And so he's making that clear to the disciples. And so finally they get there and he arrives. It says, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days, which means he was like dead, dead. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never, not, will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into this world. Now, so he, he goes. Lazarus is dead, dead, four days. Jewish people, ancient Near East, lots of folks, they uh, believed that it was on the fourth day that you actually died and that the Spirit left that up until that point that they thought maybe the Spirit was kind of still hovering around. I would have to think, this is just totally Jonathan Miller's conjecture here, but I would have to think that had something to do with like medical moments where it would appear as though someone had died, like maybe they were in a coma, or maybe there, there was an issue, and it's like they appeared to be dead, and probably for like three days that they could, you know, maybe come back and there would still be some life left there. There, there were probably some of that, there's probably some superstition, there's probably some religion and just ritual that goes on there, it's a little bit of everything. But by day four, like, Nobody's coming back, is what they believe. This is it. So that, that's day four is when they wrap them up, they bury them, they do all this stuff, and they kind of move on. Like that's, it's over at day four. And so they, they come to Jesus, where Martha runs out to Jesus, and it's like, listen, if you would have been here, if you would have been around, like, I know you could have saved him. But she tacks on this thing of like, but I still trust in you, and I still believe you're going to do more. Now, for those of you that are familiar with the Mary and Martha story, uh, this is probably not the story you think of quite so quickly. You probably think of the moment when Mary sits at the feet of Jesus and is a disciple. 
For all of you in the room that resonate with Martha, I think this is a moment where you can kind of see the positive sides of those characteristics that keep her busy in the kitchen. I think this is the, the Gospels. Uh, John was not the one that wrote that story. It's uh, most commonly found in Luke. But what you see here is, is the whole of Scripture pointing to something, I think. Others agree with me, so I'm not out on like a heretical limb here. But I think that what you see is the display of personalities. Mary is a woman that's caught up in the moment, a woman I can relate in. And when things are good, she sits at the feet of Jesus and she kind of forgets about her task and the things that need to be done. Martha is a woman of principles, is a woman of action. She's doing what needs to be done. Mary is a woman that is consumed by her emotions and her feelings. And in one moment, that's really good. And Jesus says, this is the better. And I think here on display, you see the, the like, kind of shadow side of that gifting. You see here, Martha, being a woman of principle and a woman of action, runs to Jesus and displays great faith. This woman that was committed to doing something says, I'm going to go do something. I'm going to run to Jesus, and I'm going to plead my case. And you see this faith in her that wasn't on display necessarily in that story. You know, it's kind of, we throw Martha under the bus all the time. But here you see Martha's faith on display, and you see Mary kind of in that same way being given to her emotions and to like she's kind of like Dude, you weren't here like bump you like I'm out like this no I don't want to go talk to him I'm gonna stay right here in my grief and there are some other explanations of maybe she was in a different part of the house and she didn't hear whatever it might be but I think the text lends towards us seeing this that you see this Mary is consumed in her grief consumed in maybe her depression and it is, is hesitant to act and Martha is quick. In just a few verses, we'll read too that they're basically going to say the exact same thing when they see Jesus. But Martha adds on this, but I still trust you and know that whatever you ask will happen. And Mary's kind of silent on that point. So after Jesus tells her that uh, he is the resurrection and the life, which, by the way, I think Martha, when Jesus first talks and she hears, your brother will rise again, if you've ever walked through grief, people have a tendency to give you platitudes and kind of like niceties, far off, distant, what feels like realities over there. And they're like, it, it'll all work out for good in the end. And I think Martha is kind of like, Jesus, I know that. That's not what I said. Like, you didn't hear me. I said, if you would have been here, you could have fixed it. I know he's going to be fine. Like, I know those things to be true. You don't need to give me niceties and platitudes. And I think Jesus' response is, is, no, no, Martha, you didn't hear me. I wasn't just saying platitudes. And I think this is part of what we need to embody as believers. As Christians, we have to embrace this way of, of being and existing to where there's these truths that are out there, and our tendency is to keep them as far-off, distant realities over there that don't really have any impact to what we're doing here and now. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 Martha. I am who I am, and that means something here in the moment that you need to grasp and hold on to, that you need to get into your being and allow it to change you. I'm trying to tell you something, and I think that that is a word for us here, that we know the niceties, we know what is right, we know the platitudes, but Jesus intends to encounter you in such a way that he says, no, no, no I'm the resurrection and the life for you now. And he unpacks this theology. After he does so, she says, he looks at her. And again, Greek's helpful here. Verse 26. And whoever lives by believing in me will never not die. And he says, do you believe this? This is a personal singular you. A, a, a way to sort of paraphrase this would have been, my dear Martha, do you understand what I'm trying to say to you? I, the way I look at my children uh, when I'm in, in a, a tender moment, I guess you could call it, a moment of trying to help them, I'll look at them and I'll say, buddy, do you get it? Buddy, do you hear what I'm trying to say? This is Jesus looking at Martha with love and compassion and care and saying, do, do you hear what I'm saying? And I love Martha's response because it's encouraging to me and I hope it's encouraging to you. She never says she believes and understands what Jesus is saying about the resurrection of the life. And I think that's intentional on John's part. I think John intentionally has Martha's response be, I believe in you. You're the Messiah, the one who has come into the world. 
I believe in your actions. I believe in your being, your existence, your life, your love, your grace. And there's space that it's okay that maybe she doesn't get it all. There's space in her doubt. There's space in her confusion. There's space in her grief and her hurt to where she's like, I could imagine her wanting to believe that her brother will be fine and also knowing the realities of the fact that he is dead, dead. And she, in that moment of pain, in that moment of grief and confusion, and in the inability to wrap her mind around something so existential and so theological and heady, she says, I believe in you. I believe that you are the Messiah. And I think it's her way of saying, like, I don't really get it, but if you say it, then I'm cool with it. And I'm going to continue to serve and to follow you. And Jesus does not correct her. He does not explain. He sort of says, okay, good. That's the primary point. And I think in our moments of pain and in our moments of suffering, we are required to respond in the same way. We will not always understand and be able to explain everything. But our lives and our fidelity must be given to Jesus. And these are our moments where we are able to have faith. And Martha's faith is displayed in Jesus here. And so then Jesus says, okay, go back. Go get Mary. And so she goes back and she gets Mary. And we're in verse 28 here. And she says, the teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews had been with Mary in the house com comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The way that sentence is structured, I think she's in some way saying like, my brother, meaning me. Where were you for me, Jesus? Do you understand what's happening to me? Like, this is my family. This is my life. Yeah, yeah it's my brother, but also, like, is, you weren't there for me. And Jesus compassionately is looking at her. And in her doubt, in her faith, and in her depression, her inability to come out to meet Jesus the first time, what I love about Jesus sending for her is he doesn't scold her. He doesn't lecture her. He doesn't say, well, you missed out. Too bad. No, he looks at Martha and he says, go get your sister. I know she's struggling, but I'm still here for her. I still want to be near to her in this pain and in this grief. Go get her. I have something to say to both of you, and I love that he sins for them. Bruner says this in his commentary as well, that his staying outside of the village is to show this personal, like, he's not there to teach. He's not there to put on a display for the public. He wants Mary and Martha to come out and talk to him in private in this personal kind of dialogue that's happening. Also, something really cool with this, too, is that there's two words here. The, this, the teacher is here. One, this also shows, again, Mary and Martha, we hear, oh, like Mary was like wanted to learn and sit at the feet of Jesus. She wanted to be a disciple. Martha just wanted to work, yada, yada, yada. Well, the fact that Martha calls Jesus the teacher would have been a very specific term that would have been rabbi, which would have been reserved specifically for disciples which in the ancient Near East in the first century uh, it would have been reserved for pretty much men to call only teachers, rabbis. Like that, that would have been a, a word that, from a man to a man. And what we see here is the overwhelming and universal grace of Jesus welcoming all in and saying, no, women can sit and can follow and can be my disciples as well. And also we see that Martha and Mary both would have considered him in this position, meaning they both would have considered themselves disciples of Jesus. I think that matters in the story of Martha and Mary. And so she says, the teacher, our rabbi, who we follow, he is here. And the here that is there is a very weird word in the Greek that is the same as when it says that Jesus is coming. It's the present of the parousia, which is Jesus' second coming or the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it's this way of saying, like, the one that is coming to establish the kingdom and bring life, like, that's here now and it's him. The teacher is here. He has come. And he has something for you. And the word that says she gets up very quickly is the same word that is used for when Jesus is instantly raised from the dead that we will read later at the end of John. And so there's all of this imagery that in our grief, in our doubt, in our suffering, that Jesus comes near to us even though we don't necessarily deserve it or want to be near to him. 
He comes, and in that moment, he brings life, and he brings it instantaneously in the same way that the very Spirit of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead will breathe life into you and give you life in the midst of the darkest and most difficult moments of your life. Where you find yourself most struggling and most lost, where you find yourself in the most pain, unable to walk out to meet Jesus, Jesus will say, that's fine, I want you to come anyways. But he will not force himself in. He will wait for you to come to him and he will look at you in those moments and he will say, I have life for you. And here it is. And so they have this interaction. And he sees her in her pain and in her weeping. And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. And he was deeply moved in the spirit and troubled. And he asked a very simple question, which is, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Shortest sentence in the Bible, shortest verse, the one everybody should have memorized. And I think, again, we can lose that. Like, wept, Jesus, oh yeah, he cried a few tears. No, this is carrying the sense that, like, Jesus wailed and bawled with them. He ugly, ugly cried with them. Like, this is the word that this is carrying. Most of us in this room are white, uh, of Anglo-Saxon. You look around, it's kind of obvious. One of the things that white people do is white people very much, uh, we're very stoic, our emotions. You know, it's kind of admirable to just kind of cry a little bit at a, a funeral and just sort of dab a tear away. Ancient Near Eastern folks would have been more like being at a black funeral. They know how to grieve. Same way at graduation. I hate this at graduation. Everybody's like, hey, this dude just did this really great thing, but we just want you to all sit there quietly and golf clap at the very end. And white people are like, yes, that's so admirable. Other cultures are like, no, we're going to celebrate the mess out of this because this is an amazing thing that just happened. They show emotion in a different kind of way that we would be good to see. I think we can kind of put Jesus in this really kind of emotionless box of like, look how stoic and how great he is when he steps into this moment and he just sort of cries a little tear with him. Oh, how kind. No, I think Jesus is like wailing with them. He is bawling. He is overcome with grief and his emotions are showing that he is bothered by this that all I think he's not just grieved that they don't understand some people try to say that no no no. I think he is grieving the fact that everyone who walks the face of the earth himself included human Jesus must reckon with the realities of death and he knows that that is not the way it's meant to be he knows that we are supposed to not have to deal with that pain and that grief and it causes him to cry not just shed a little tear and get a little teary-eyed like we have a tendency to do, but to really just like weep, to, to, to get down on the ground and heave and have the snot and the tears get all over you and to not care, to not try to hold it together and cry like attractively, to cry impressively, but to let yourself feel the depth of it and say, I don't care, I am going to make a scene because I'm sad. I think we'd be good to allow ourselves to experience emotions like that on both ends because if you can do that when you're sad, you can do that when you're excited. And if you can't do it when you're excited, you can't do it when you're sad. You have to be able to feel. And Jesus, as his human self, he felt the depths and the realities of being human, which was to have emotion and to have feelings and to respond to those feelings and to not trying to hide them. And so Jesus wept. And then the Jews responded and said, see, he really loved this man. But then naturally, as we do, some of them responded with, couldn't he have just not opened, if he opened the eyes of the blind, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? And so Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time, there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? I don't think this is Martha, like, necessarily doubting. I think it's just more Martha saying, like, do you have any idea what you're about to do? Like, this, this is kind of, this is going to be embarrassing. Like, this is going to be gross. Do you really want to go to this place with us all right now, here, with everybody watching? This is what you want to happen. Because this is going to, like, this is going to stink. There's a vulnerability and a fear here that she's like, I, I, like I'm, I'm with you, I think. And he's like, I'm going to show you. And she's like, I, 
really, this is the way? This is the way we're going to do it. They say, yeah. So they take away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and, and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they, might, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, and his hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go home. It's another one of these like kind moments. Jesus healing someone, doing something miraculous. Doesn't say, follow me. Doesn't say, do all this stuff. He just says, just go home. You need to go home. Other moments, he, he comes back and give him something to eat. When he comes back from death, he's like just really casual. He's just like, I'm kind of hungry. Like dying kind of wears you out, I guess. So he looks at Lazarus and he says, just, just go home, but take the grave clothes off first, like because you're not dead anymore. I have called you to life and that is done. It's over. There's also this really beautiful imagery of this resurrection with the resurrection of Jesus and that there's a manual removing of the stone here and when they show up for Jesus' resurrection, the stone just moves on its own. He's still in his grave clothes. When Jesus shows up and is resurrected, the grave clothes are neatly folded. And John will want us to make sure that we know that the face cloth that Lazarus is still wearing is perfectly folded in a square inside the tomb. Like these resurrections are different, but they're pointing to each other. They're, they're ideas. This is a shadow of what is to come, of what we are to celebrate. And as the people standing around see this and hear it, many of the Jews that came to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did and they believed in him. So quickly, let me go back, and I'm going to read a few verses, and then I'm going to say one thing, and then we're going to land this plane. So I'm going to read really fast verses 21 through 35, and not give my commentary, and then say something. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you, dear Martha, believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. And now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think when you look at something like this, and we read this passage... We can relate deeply with this feeling or this idea that Jesus sometimes feels late or missing. The question of Jesus, where are you, is a question that if you have not asked, then we've answered the question at the beginning, which is, you live in Pollyanna. The story in the season of Lent is one where we look around and make an honest assessment of our life and the world around us, and we say, Jesus, where are you? Where are you in all of this? Where were you? And we do so in faith and knowing that there is a way in which, if he had been the thing that we know him to be, then life would be different. And for myriads of reasons, we experience this pain in our childhoods, especially those of us in this room, myself, I'm now way older than this, but as you're, you're coming into adulthood, college, early 20, mid-20s, you start to reckon with and see that, oh wait, my childhood wasn't what I thought it was. As I, I interact with more people, maybe find myself in therapy and I go, wait, like, there, there was some real pain there. There was some suffering. It, Jesus, where, where were you in all of that? Like, why weren't you there? 
as we experience disappointment in our jobs, careers, marriage, or the lack thereof, it is natural to ask, Jesus, where were you? And to wonder, what, Jesus, aren't you a little late? Hey, yeah, this is nice. Now, I could have really used this revelation, this comfort, this confidence when I was 14 and not 34. I could have used this grace, this forgiveness when I was 22. I could have used this friend when I was 17. Like, whatever it is. We get this sense that oftentimes we experience the goodness in the life that Jesus wants to give to us, but we ask ourselves, like, where were you? Aren't you, weren't you supposed to be here already? It's a natural question to ask. It's one that the human experience is acquainted with because we're acquainted with and we are experiencers of grief and pain. And in the moment, we're tempted to do the one or the other, right? Maximize or ignore and what Jesus does, he looks at them when they're asking all these questions that are good and right questions. And he knows, and yet he still cries, and he still weeps, even though he knows what's about to happen, because I think he experiences and knows what's going on deep within them. And he doesn't try to give a theological defense. He doesn't try to explain himself. He doesn't try to say, like, listen, I know, like, just watch. It's going to be really cool. It's all going to be fine. No, no, no. He weeps with them, and then he looks at them, and he says, where have you laid him? And I don't think that this question is just supposed to be another one where Jesus is trying to be tricky or like, you know, move past something here. But I think he's looking at them and he is saying, take me to the place of the pain. Take me to the loss. And I think for us and in a season of Lent that that's the question that a passage like this shows us. We see in the story of Lazarus that Jesus is the one that is the Messiah who has come into the world. And the way the story ends, if we don't get the histories of Lazarus, we don't get more about Martha and Mary, what we get is that a whole bunch of people believed in that moment that Jesus could do the things that he said he was going to do. That Jesus was the one that the Old Testament had been promising. That the scriptures had been pointing to. That was Jesus and he just showed us. And a whole bunch of people believed. And because of that, I think as we see that and we reckon with that Jesus is capable of bringing people back from the dead, then when he looks at you, those dead places and those painful places, those places that you have rolled the stone over and closed up and barricaded off, that you've refused to go back to, those places in your life where you're like, no, 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 we don't go there, that stinks. Do you have any idea what will happen if we open that up? Do you have any idea how much stuff is shoved into that box that has been just crammed down, that, like, Jesus, no, 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 no. I believe that you're the Messiah, but I don't know if we want to go there. And he is looking at us, desperately begging us as followers of him to go to the places of pain with him. He's asking, where have you buried it? Where does it lay? And we can have all sorts of ways in which we try to, like, put it on something else, right? Jesus, he's dead, he's gone, where were you? You could have been here faster. And he's looking at him and saying, no, 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 take me to the grief. Take me to the place that it happened. Allow yourself to confront it because I am with you in those moments and what I want to do and what I intend to do is to bring life out of it. We have all the ways in which we try to say that this is the thing and we're really talking about something else and what Jesus is saying, and I know you're talking about this up here, but what I want you to do is I want you to take me to the thing down here. And I want to open it up and I want to bring life and wholeness and freedom to you in the midst of all of it. And I love their response. They say, Jesus, come and see. They don't try to caveat it. They don't try to walk away. Cynicism would have said, ah, Jesus, don't worry about it. It's too late. We're not going to go there. We're past it. If you would have just, anger would have said, well, you've already missed your chance, pal, so like, I'm just going to move on. Pollyanna, optimism would have said, don't, don't worry, Jesus, don't trouble yourself. It's fine. We don't need to go there. Like, it'll all be, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Let's just, let's just go eat some casseroles. Let's just enjoy some good cooking. Like, time will heal all wounds, you know. Like, it'll all be fine. And, and, and we want to ignore it. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Take me to the place of the pain, to the burden, to the hardship, the struggle. Look past all the things that you want to name it as and take me to the root of it. And there, the thing that you want to hide from yourself and from Jesus and the world around you, 
the thing that you think is untouchable, unredeemable, unsalvageable. That's the place that the Lord wants to meet you at. And he wants to say to you, I bring you life and life abundant. Because Jesus is one that is acquainted with our pain. As the band comes up and they play the next song, we'll move into communion. We'll come and we'll take the bread and the cup and we'll hold on to the elements. And these moments at the table are reminders that Jesus took on the very flesh and nature of humanity. That he took on the skin, that he, he bled blood of humanity, he cried tears. I love the idea of thinking that two weeks ago I preached on uh, Jesus being the one that sat at a tomb weary. And there's this thing about Jesus that is fully man and fully God and he knows our pain and our suffering and our weakness as one that needs to sit and yet also he's the one that can walk on water. He's the one that cries tears with those that are in deep pain and he's also the one that will shed blood in order that Christ will be the Messiah and save the world. And yet he doesn't make those two things conflict, he holds them together. And he holds them together because he assumes the very things about the human nature and the human experience that desperately need saving. And what he assumes is saved. And what is not assumed is not saved. And we celebrate in this moment that the depths and the struggles and the difficulties and the brokenness of the human life and experience has been assumed by Jesus Christ and has been felt and experienced and redeemed. And you are invited to come and to take that bread and that cup and to hold on to those elements. Return to your seats. And we'll take together as a community at large of one body and one cup to be reminded of God's saving and salvific grace that he has given to us through his death, burial, and resurrection. His pathway through death has been the thing that will give us life. But we must follow. And so I ask of you, as you reflect, as you pray, allow the Holy Spirit in these moments to reveal to you those dark places, those painful places, the places that you've hidden and buried away. And when the Lord asks of you, where have you laid it? Respond with come and see and experience the life and the hope of the life of Jesus Christ. So come, receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.